Before we start today's episode, a bit of housekeeping for all those listeners out there. Whichever your podcast listening platform of choice, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify, reviews can make a huge impact. Not only do we value your feedback, which can help us create better content, it will also help others discover the podcast. So spread the love and leave a review if you've got a minute. And with that, on with today's show. I'm the Reverend Dr. Jenny McKay, veterinarian and minister in secular employment, environmentalist, activist and self-confessed cat junkie. But believe it or not, I have never drunk Guinness strictly for medicinal purposes. Someone who has is my guest, Katie, a.k.a. the Reverend Diddy Top. So, Katie, for those listeners out there who don't follow your wonderful Twitter account, can you tell me about your Guinness drinking? (laughs) I could blame it on my parents. I blame a lot of things on my parents. Because uh, when I was little, apparently the way they uh, pacify me when they went to the sailing club for uh, socialising was my dad would dip his finger in the froth of his Guinness and feed it to me when I was a little baby. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say it all started there. But uh, more recently, uh, I do have a taste for the dark ales. Um, I was advised my iron count was very low before having an operation, and the nurse said, "Do you like Guinness?" I said, "Well, as it happens, I do." She said, "Well, what I would suggest is." This is my personal opinion, not my professional advice, is that you think of things that you could eat and drink that are very high in iron. For example, Guinness and dark chocolate. I said, I can do that. So I did. Um, and presumably it worked because when I took my blood before the operation, they said my iron count was fine. Ah, and did you have to continue with this iron control after the operation? Do you know, I didn't ask. So um, I just drank it on the off chance. <laughs> <laughs> And you're doing you're doing okay after your operation now that you had earlier in the year. Yeah, I had a, a full left hip replacement, so that was um, down to arthritis. I've actually got arthritis in both my hips, uh, lucky me. But the left one was more severe in terms of a surgical intervention, so they decided to do that one first. Uh, it's not my weight bearing leg; uh, my weight bearing leg is my right leg. But they didn't deem that one uh, sufficiently degenerative enough to want okay. going in first. Oh, so you might need to get the other one done at some point. I will. I had a lovely chat with my consultant and said, so medically, clinically, what do you think? And he said, well, looking at your x-ray, it doesn't look too bad, but how does it feel? And I said, well, looking at my x-ray, it looks a lot better on screen than it feels inside. So we're talking about maybe a few months time, um, just so I can get properly over having the first one done. Because it's a massive, it's a massive intervention in the human body, and just having an anaesthetic anyway is quite a big thing. So, yes. um, so the new hip feels great. My cerebral palsy, which is my underlying condition, doesn't like it very much. It doesn't like change. I think my okay. cerebral palsy is probably a typical Anglican. sits at the back and mutters about change all the time. Doesn't like any of it, even when it's good. So, um, so there's been a, a bit of a journey on getting my neurological condition, my cerebral palsy, to understand and appreciate the joy of a new hip that doesn't hurt and doesn't grind okay. anymore. So that's Good. taken a little bit longer to to get those two to work in in tandem. So um, so I think probably in a few months' time, that's when we'll look at doing the other hip. And that will have its own complications in that this is the weight-bearing leg. So I can't just 
right. give it a day off and go, I'll just use a crutches, it's fine. This is the one I rely on. So um, it'll be fun. Tune in next year for more details. Yes. Well, hopefully that all goes very well. Thank you. And you may have to take a bit more Guinness and dark chocolate before that one. I can do that. <laughs> So I just wanted to ask you um, a bit about um, a live diversity webinar, which the Church of England hosted. Uh, That was last month and it was the aim to discuss what it means to become a more diverse church, which, of course, is, is something the Church of England and all of us need to be thinking about. What did you think of the webinar and how did it speak to your own experiences as a priest with cerebral palsy? I thought it was ambitious to try and cover diversity in a 45 minute webinar. Um, The speakers individually were very, very good people, uh, particularly um, Reverend Rachel Mann, who is um, up in the north of of England, um, talking particularly about gender and sexuality was was her um, particular take on things. Um, but applicable, I, I think, to people who are disabled as well. So what kind of church are we called to be? What kind of body of Christ are we to inhabit? Um, if you're not normal, in quotes, then your identity is always under scrutiny and question. And I th- thought I was very pertinent that disabled people um, are are there to be looked at and assessed and prodded and poked, certainly by the, the medical prof- um, uh, fraternity. And and I think we find that as well in church, that we're often being assessed for are we useful enough? Are we capable enough? Are we competent enough? Um, in some extreme cases, are we human enough to warrant belonging or even coming across the threshold if we can even get in the front door? Um, and, and for us, you know, our bodies are an integral part of who we are and our disabilities, our disabling conditions and the way society treats us are mm-hmm. a formative part of our identity. So Mm -hmm. uh, trying to be more diverse as an institution is to bring in, to welcome in, to make space for people who are different from what has been the norm for so many years. Um, And if you're a member of the normative group being asked to to move aside and make some room for these people who are not only not like you, but so unlike you and so unlike you in a way that makes you afraid that you might become like them one day, then you're not going to want to give up your space. So I thought the Church of England wanting to do a a, a diversity webinar was very ambitious. Trying to cover Mm. all of that in the time they had was uh, possibly too ambitious. Um, Some of the language used in the webinar was not terribly helpful. I did tweet about it at the time, so I won't go over it again. Um, But just things around language use, profoundly disabled, wheelchair-bound, I think they could have really done with some um, yes. diversity training yeah. the person yes. hosting it before actually hosting it. So it it was, I think the intentions were very good. Um, mm-hmm. I think they tried to cover too much in in one session. They could have easily done each bit in in its own right yes. with some crossover conversation. Um, and I think there could have been more conversation between those who were attending. And those who are presenting, mm-hmm. always the danger of a webinar, not enough time to do what you want to yes. do. So a good start, but not the whole story. 
No, no. And yeah, really, you would you would have thought that they might have discussed some of this this language and the way you approach these sorts of discussions beforehand. Um, you would think would have so. thought so. You would think so. <laughs> and you know, you asked about how the CV is doing, not just in a, a webinar, but but across the board. And um, I think it's a bit. I describe it as as trying to melt a glacier with a matchstick. Um, so I think the C of E, if you look back over the generations, the Church of England is doing better than it has. Is it going as well as it could have? Not really. But is it making some progress? It is. And there are good people on the ground doing really good things. Um, and people like the Bishop of Bedford, uh, Bishop Richard, yes, who heads up yes. various parts of, of disability within the Church of England, He's a really good thing, too. And he's got working parties and different groups and individuals working towards different aspects of making disability uh, not a fearful word and not a problem to be solved, but a a rich diversity within the body of Christ to be recognized and upheld. So um, so people like that give me real hope that the the CV will continue to move forward, um, but just very, very slowly. And you also work as well with um, Disability and Jesus, and that's an online community that uh, you co-founded with the Reverend Bill Bravener. Can you tell me a little bit about that, Kate? I can. So back in, oh, I think it must be about 2014, but people will correct me. Um, A bunch of us met in a pub in Harrogate because it was local to us all at that point. Um, And pubs feature quite highly in a lot of my story. And... um, (laughs) And we all just sat together and said, why is there nothing of any good that is about theological stuff around disability written by disabled theologians? Why is it always about us and not not with us in the middle of it? Why is there not a, a, a good amount of resources around training about disability awareness by disabled people, not just at them um, or talking about us? And, um, and what kind of came out of that conversation was the idea of a group called Disability and Jesus, a working title originally, but it kind of stuck because... Well, it does what it says in the tin, really. Um, and the three original co-founders were David Lucas, um, who is a blind activist who now runs the Ordinary Office um, account on Twitter, uh, Bill Bravener and me. Um, and we were the main sort of movers and shakers in those early years. Uh, we've we've had a, a passing of the ways over the last few years. Um, and so Bill and I have retained the disability in Jesus name and continued with that. Um, and yeah. Dave has continued with the Ordinary Office, um, both on Twitter. We're on Twitter because it's free. Uh, so far um who knows what direction it will go in next um and it's also a place where an awful lot of disabled people actually spend a lot of their time it's where the activists spend their time trying to just make sure that disability is is a visible thing is talked about in the open market um it doesn't really get more of an open market than twitter so we're primarily there but we're also on youtube we produce a a recorded as live sunday service Mm -hmm. every single sunday and then we try to do some of the feasts and and the high days and holy days as well um and the new year's eve stuff that kind of thing um just to be to be online church which is different from church online so we're already Mm -hmm. online and we've said how do we do church here as opposed to being church and saying how do we shift it online with a camera or live stream which is a different thing again um, and we're there to have conversations about disability, to talk about the relationship between church and faith and disability, mm-hmm. to be disabled disciples in the public space, um, yes. to engage with the disability activists who are outside the church and have no intention of being anywhere inside the church. 
um, and to say, yeah, actually, your critiques are completely right. We completely agree with you. What can we do together to bring social justice and faith and lived experience into a good space to make good things happen and to critique and be critical friend to the systems yes. and the organisations? That's brilliant. And I mean, social media, it opens up so many doors, doesn't it? to discussions with everybody yeah and you can get to everybody without having to get in a car and drive anywhere whereas exactly. when you do things on site as the, the global footprint to think about the climate change and stuff and having to spend money on diesel and what have you so um yeah in social media you do get some weird people on social media as well you get some of the trolls you get people who hide behind avatars and you wonder exactly who they are who and is that? you say if i meet you in a cafe with a cup of tea would you say that to my face i don't think you would so move on um but you do get the people who look and go oh you can be for example mm -hmm. a priest in the church of england and disabled i didn't know you could do that yes you can other leadership availabilities are also there um but some it's not all about being ordained but being a very visible ordained person and a visible disabled person on something like social media um gives yeah. people the opportunity to go oh so someone like me is doing something like that maybe i could too it's fantastic it, it really is because um you know as you say it's not it's not out there anywhere you know when, when you're thinking about ordination training or whatever it, it's very very much much geared up to the the normal if you like it is and, and all of our systems whether it's faith um, belief whether it's um, society politics economics big business small business that the normative is um, usually able-bodied white middle-class men who are quite well educated um, and and are comfortably off with their finances and that's always been the model um, and anyone who comes into that from a different perspective mm. um, will always struggle um, disabled people I think struggle more because I think people are afraid of becoming disabled because of the way that society talks about disability so who wants to join that then you join us from accident or incident and you go oh this is great you you guys are all right aren't you you're not quite as scary as I thought you were um, <laughs> although some people who, who join the disability community for a short time because they've had an accident or an incident and then get better you can see the yes. relief on their faces as they go phew mm. I'm back to normal again so I think mm. disability is the mm. scary one of the minorities because anyone could join our ranks at any point. I mean, no white mm -hmm. person becomes black overnight. Um, no straight person becomes gay overnight. Um, but you could literally Huge. join the disability community overnight for accident or incident. Um, yeah. And it's the one community that anyone could join. Um, yes. And it's talked down so much who would want to. But then you do join us and you go, oh, you guys are OK. <laughs> and being a visible person um anywhere oh, yeah. is uh it takes some guts um living with a visible disability is a huge thing because people are attracted yes. to that with stones and outrage and and improper language and and what have you and yeah and the clerical color as well as you say yeah yeah you get both <laughs> people don't know what to do with you you're like how can you be a priest and disabled uh, watch um. me <laughs> But you're also you also have a tremendous role as um, a disability advisor for the Oxford Diocese. So, can you tell me a little bit about what that role entails and how does your work help foster inclusivity and accessibility within the church? In a nutshell, I think my role for Oxford Diocese as a disability advisor is probably on three levels. I'm a good Anglican, I like having in threes. So here we go, it's Trinity. <laughs> so there is the what you might call the ground level, the grassroots, the where people are actually doing the stuff. 
and that is visiting church buildings after a, an email's come in saying we've got a ramp will you have a look at our ramp please and I say oh I can imagine what your ramp looks like and I'm usually right so we talk about ramps and what I actually do is I send them an audit which is a narrative audit which asks questions rather than being a tick box and they feel okay. bad about not ticking boxes and then they send me that back with pictures and a little video sometimes and I say, that's great. That gives me an idea. And I come and do a visit. And we walk up the whole site. I use crutches to walk around site visits. I use my wheelchair at church house. It's easier. So we walk around the whole site from wherever I parked my car all the way up to the altar and everything in between. And we talk about how we can make little changes to make small things better. Better signage, different font, um, <laughs> easier things to read in terms of notice sheet and service sheets. Not storing communion yes. wine in the disabled toilet. All those kind of things, things that seem obvious to you. Um, replacing the gravel with actual tarmac path because it's better. Little things like that. We talk about bigger things which are going to need Archdeacon to, to give permissions for things. We talk about the really yeah. big things which are going to need full-blown faculty. So planning mm. permission from the Church of England to do those things. We talk about mm. grants and how to raise money and where to go and apply for those kind of things. And we talk about all those things and we touch on liturgy and language and prayer ministry and how it's done. And how they're raising up vocations of all kinds of people from within their church communities. So that's kind of the, the ground level. I work alongside those churches to say, how can we get you a little bit further along, making not just welcome and accessibility, but full inclusion and so that everybody belongs. The next level up, I suppose, is probably looking at the institutions within the diocese. So the vocations team, communications team, um, the area offices, all the people that kind of operate from church house and its equivalent to say, are we modeling the things that I'm asking the churches to do? Mm -hmm. Are we doing it in our language, in the way we operate? Are we raising up vocations from different diverse communities as well? Um, are we watching our language on our emails and our, on our websites and the things we send out from church house? All that kind of thing. And then I suppose the third level is trying to connect with other dioceses as well and, other, and, and looking at the national church. What are we doing as a national church? Um, how are we connecting the disability advisors in each of the other dioceses? Um, there are 42 dioceses. They don't all have a named person and only four have a paid individual to do this work. The others are, are relying on volunteers in their spare time or their free time or within the HR remit at church house, whatever. So um, four out of 42 dioceses pay Ooh. someone to do this. And, I, and I, I'm the chair of the network, so I connect them and, and we, okay. we resource each other. We talk to each other, meet on Zoom every month and how it's going. Mm -hmm. So there's that national picture as well of how we're we doing nationally and who needs help and which dioceses have nobody at all. So I'm trying to do a little bit of that. Um, yeah. And do how see, we fostering community. Do you think that will change? Go on. Do you see, do you see the wheels of change I mean, getting more paid employment for these advisors. It certainly gives me an oversight into how the how each diocese approaches disability and where it places it as a priority. And I know that everyone's skint and no diocese has lots of money, apart from the big ones that have lots of historic money, which makes them paper rich, but not necessarily cash rich as well, um, which is tricky. So it gives me an oversight of how we're doing. And and they give me hope as well. Those individual Darson advisors who are not being paid for what they do, they give me real hope because they care and they really want to do this mm. and they get no remuneration at all. Some of them get hardly any support, um, but they really want to make a difference. Yeah. So we are seeing inclusivity and accessibility. We are seeing people becoming more aware 
Um, I do training events um, for different dioceses as well as my own um, with okay. people who are trained to be readers or curates or, or um, incumbents, yeah, yeah. what have you. Um, and you can see people going, oh, that hadn't occurred to me. Does that also mean this is problematic? Yes, it is. You're getting it. So uh, it, yeah, fostering inclusivity and accessibility, I suppose we are because we are the voice that says, have you considered? Have a look yes. at what do you think about? Um, we're not the audit police. We're not there to tell people no. off. But we are there to say, from lived experience, can I just share with you that this needs adjusting? This is problematic. That's a downright absolutely no. So I think slowly and quietly, we we are making a difference, like you know, a grain of salt in a, in a yes. vat of cake mix. <laughs> yes. Well, as you said, it, it it's like many things in the in the CV. I don't want to come across that I'm criticizing the CV, but uh, yeah, it, it is very very slow um i think some people like me here we're ministers in in secular employment um have faced similar misunderstandings people you know don't don't really get it what what that ministry is is about and it's all about turning this big ship around isn't it um just moving forward with with the age really um what it says in the bible is uh well that's another thing people can sort of pick things out of the bible but you know if you look at it holistically isn't that message and you know as well it's to to love people um to include everybody and and how much better the world would be and the church would be if we all lived up to that yeah i mean john 3 16 and 17 doesn't say god so loved most of the world that he no. sent his only son to to pick his favourites and the one who'd been to Oxbridge and went, well done, good and faithful servant, and looked at the rest and went, not so good. You know, he said God so loved the world that he sent his exactly. only son, not to condemn, but to save. Yeah. So any church or individual that looks like it's condemning more than it's rescuing, um, I'm highly yeah. suspicious of. Yeah, yeah. So your ordination j- journey, um, Katie, it's actually been two decades since you were ordained I know can you tell me a little bit about that that journey into priesthood was it something that was um, a big part of your childhood or did it develop later in life my um my journey to dog collar was um a bit bumpy um when I was seven um I was part of my church choir um we lived in Wales at this point Welsh Wales so uh, if you're an English person and you can sing, then that's great. If you can't, then you need to learn Welsh quickly. Um, otherwise, you're in trouble. So I jest, but the Welsh people are very proud of their Welsh heritage. So it's a good thing to be an English person who can sing or speak Welsh. So um, I uh, was in the church choir and very much part of church life um, in terms of the music. and enjoyed the Sunday school, which is great too. Um, but at the age of seven, I kind of had this what I now think was an existential crisis, which sounds very grown up for a seven-year-old, but that's how I would now recognise it, which was recognising that disability and having cerebral palsy was actually a bad thing. And society did not like disabled children and we were to be pitied um, and we were the object of charity. Um, And um, so I got quite cross about this and and said to my mum, you know, am I disabled? Am I?" um, And the word at the time, forgive me, was the word spastic was used an awful lot. It's a very medicalised term, but it's also quite a harsh term that's used against Mm, people. mm. And so she said, well, well, you know, yes, we've never made any secret of that. And I'm like, yeah, but why me? And it was a very kind of 
a difficult time I think being, being seven anyway is quite tricky yeah. Um, yeah. I was quite cross with God and I can remember our vicar um, Reverend Ian Davis um, who I think probably is probably dead by now but I suspect he's not as old as I thought he was <laughs> he's probably that <laughs> Um, but uh, he had a long chat with me. I don't remember what was said because I was seven and I'm 49, so time has passed. But I do remember coming out of that conversation being more content that God doesn't make okay. mistakes and that disability and disabling conditions are part of creation and somehow okay. Um, and that was and that was okay. And at that point, God said to me very clearly, "You're going to be a vicar one day." And I laughed. And I'm like, I'm seven. This is ridiculous. <laughs> and I'm a girl. There aren't any girl victims. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the other thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm a girl. I'm, I'm a seven-year-old girl. And I'm disabled. That just doesn't happen. So thanks for the idea, God. But I'm going to be a helicopter pilot, um, <laughs> which I thought was quite reasonable. Not really <laughs> twigging about the whole medical thing. Um, so, uh, so I hit my teens. Um, and that conversation in my head with God had never gone away, but it had just gone very quiet. Hit my mm-hmm. teens. And that conversation came back. God sort of snuck up one day and went, do you remember when you were seven? Yeah. And I said, you're going to be a vicar? Yeah. Well, you still are. And we were in Church of England by this point. We've moved to... Okay. And I'm like, yeah, but can I just remind you, I may well be older now, but I'm still a girl. I'm still disabled. The Church of England doesn't do disabled girls. So uh, good luck with that one. And God's like, don't worry, I'll sort it. What, for me? No, for everybody. Okay. So I put that back in my head when I hit my late teens and did a year out with the George Muller Foundation in Bristol doing youth and children's work. Um, Mm -hmm. And again, people saying to me, you know, you're going to be someone who should be a vicar. And I'm like, "Mm." and and I wobbled because the Church of England in 1992 famously turned around and went, women can be priests. And one of my big bugbears was there's no point in being ordained for me if I can't do communion, communion was the real mm. draw, the real pull. It's the yeah. all the rest I can do, but I can't yes. do communion. So if I can't yes. do communion, what's the point in getting ordained? And that was my story. Um, and then blow me, the Church of England turned around and says, yeah, you can. I'm like, darn it, I've got nothing left. And yes. I went, ah, however, however, we solved the woman thing. Uh, still disabled, and I don't see any disabled priests. And God went, don't worry about it. They're, they're out there, you just can't see them. Well, that's not very helpful. So I went through a bit of a discernment thing with Bath and Wells Diocese where I was at the time. Uh, I was also getting married and graduating. So they kind of wisely but annoyingly at the time said, go away and get used to being married, which I thought was interesting from a female point of view. They didn't say it to the men. Um, but, you know, that was the advice I was given. Go off, get married, get used to being that for a bit and then come back. So I got married, uh, living in Birmingham then. So I said to Bath and Wells, bye-bye. Okay. <laughs> so, so I was in Birmingham for a bit, um, married and, and working as a youth and children's work across Birmingham. Okay. Um, and started again with the Birmingham DDO team, the DOS and um, mm-hmm. Director of Ordina- Ordinations and, and Ordinance. So started in with them. And actually, nine months later, I was on my what was called BAP then those days. Oh, yes. It's gone through mm-hmm. so many different names now. Uh, on the final residential, and the advice was, yes, we recommend it wholeheartedly for ordination training. And I went to the bishop and went, are you serious? Mm-hmm. I, th- I thought I did my darndest to not, not get through my residential. <laughs> I kept giving him stupid flipping answers. He said, yeah, they saw through that. Okay. Um, so, you know, a year later, um, uh, I, I went off to um, a theological college, Wycliffe in, um, in right. Oxford. 
and mm-hmm. yeah, 2003, Derby Cathedral. There I was thinking, there you were. How did I get here? And God went, told you. Yeah, uh, that little voice that little was voice. there. He was right, which is really annoying. So, right um, away. so God, mm-hmm. so God won that one, and um. And it's 20 Brilliant. years. I don't feel old enough to be ordained 20 years. I look in the mirror and go, oh, I've got grey hair. Clearly I am. <laughs> but in my head, I'm still 16 or something like that. So I can't believe I'm an old enough person <gasps> to be ordained 20 years, having already had a bit of a career before that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and it, it's great. I mean, there's highs and there's lows. My curacy was brilliant. I loved being a curate. And my training humble was amazing. Robert Parsons, who is now somewhere in Shrewsbury, retired in that kind of area okay. of the world. Um, mm-hmm. He was the best training incumbent in the whole world. There was no one like him. and I loved it. Uh-huh. First incumbency in um, Hathersage, Bamford and Grindleford in the Hope Valley in North Derbyshire was a huge okay. learning curve, massive learning curve. Okay. I had my son in the middle of that. So becoming a wow. mother as well was a massive <gasps> learning curve. A disabled mum priest. Mm, that was interesting. Oh. Um, I formed a group on, on Facebook called Clergy Mummies just to try and go, how right. do you do this? Um, and now 13 years later, it's got 1,200 members. And I'm like, how did that happen? But it's it's a really cracking oh, community. That is amazing, um, isn't it? Yeah. And second incumbency over in Sheffield um, in Doran Totley, mm-hmm. which again, massive learning curve there. Um, had two cracking curates who were absolutely brilliant. Um, so I became a training incumbent. I'm like, how did I get old enough to be oh, on the training right. incumbent? Yeah, that's yeah, weird. yeah. <laughs> um, and God, you know, God's always the background of everything. God's always one step ahead of me. I look back and I can see what God's yeah. been up to. I look forward and go, I'd like a hint, please, but I don't get that. It's always the mm-hmm. hindsight. Um, yes. And and God speaks only when he really needs to very clearly. So only four or five times in my life, I've actually literally heard the voice of God go, it's a voice in the same room as you and there's no one there. Um, yes. Mostly it's just the divine nudge that just, just nudges in the right direction. And and you get that kind of butterflies to something that says, no, this is a God thing. This is definitely what God's after. So, yeah, it's all worked That's so amazing, far. That's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it's just the the path, isn't it? You come to these crossroads in, you, in your life and um, what do you say? A voice is there, and it perhaps is only with hindsight that you can understand all the things that went before that. I can always look back and go, "Oh, now I see." Now what I was see. That. But um, what I quite like is to have the other direction, rather than looking in the rearview mirror and going, "Oh, now I see." To look forward to the windscreen and go, <laughs> "Can I just get a glimpse of where I'm going next?" Yes. That's not how it's worked. It so would be far. nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> it would be great. It's like walking through a forest and going, standing by a tree and going, "Which way now?" <laughs> you know, and it always works hint, please <laughs> it always works now katie you mentioned about being a helicopter pilot um but i think you also had ambitions to be an actor oh, to yes. star in musicals oh i should be on the stage oh there's only one problem with that is i can't remember the script so <laughs> so I loved doing amdram as a kid i love being part of of sketches in church I love entertain. I love being at the front, not till I'm looked at, so I can create an environment where people come in. Something different happens for a little bit. They laugh, they cry, they they're taken outside mm-hmm. of the ordinary of the lives, um, and at the end of it, they go away, going, "That was great. That was really worth doing." Um, and I was involved in various stuff. You know, when I lived in Bristol, I got to go at the Redgrave Theatre and do a couple of of. Um, performances something called the three trees which was a musical based on the original mm-hmm. i think it's hungarian folk tale 
I loved it. I was a chat show host in part two interviewing John, oh. who was the person who worked with the wood of the first okay. half, which was the three trees and what happened to them. Um, and I loved it. I was Cherry, the chat show host, who was very acerbic and very cynical oh. and gradually over the act becomes very drawn into the story of faith. And at the end of it, she's deeply okay. moved, but can't admit that on camera. So she kind of dismisses the whole thing as a wonderful story and, you know, how tragic and how touching and how wonderful. Um, and she goes off stage looking very ponderous. Um, and I, I think you love, you can tell 20 years later, I started, I loved you it so much. Start, it was still with you? me. Yeah. Um, and I did a lot of amateur dramatic stuff and I was the vicar of Hathersage in the North, ah. in, in North Derbyshire. <laughs> so I, I did, I knew I couldn't go on stage with a script because I, I was word perfect for scripts two weeks after the opening night, um, but not <laughs> the opening night. So I was the worst actor in the world. I can act. I just can't remember my lines. Um, <laughs> um, but um, but I love directing. I've written pantomimes alongside my husband for various Amdram things. Um, okay. And and I love I love being the prompt for a, I was a prompt for a farce mm. uh, called Run for Your Wife by Ray Clooney. I think it was. Okay. Um, and I was the prompt for that. My real baptism mm. of fire with the Amdram group. And I loved it. And I love, um, there's something wonderful. beautiful about creating that space where people yeah. can come and just laugh and cry and enjoy themselves and, and mm. think of a story and be challenged a little bit. Yes. Um, being yes. part of a team. But I also like, um, I was part of the New Wine Network for a little while. Um, oh, I yeah. worked behind the scenes at, at Newark and then at Thirsk when they went up north, uh, working for the control team and, and as chief steward for one year in, in Thirsk. And it's again, it's creating that space, that environment, that place, that safety where stories can be told, faith can be explored, um, mm -hmm. life can be questioned. Um, and I just love anything like that, which I guess is quite like being a priest, really. Yes. In so many yeah, ways. I was going to say that that is another skill and talent that you can bring into your everyday ministry, Absolutely. isn't it? Absolutely. And a dream role in a musical. I think I'm a musicals kind of girl um okay. or pantomime it's the purest form of theater pantomime if you can't do it in pantomime then don't try Shakespeare <laughs> you know that's where you really cut your teeth on learning stuff um but you know I, I know the story of um P.T. Barnum is problematic but I love um The Greatest Showman I love the music in it oh. I love the the show the showmanship the whole thing so I think and Barnum was the first stage show I ever saw when I was a kid when I was seven or eight my mum and auntie Brenda took me to go to the West End to go and okay. watch West End, and it was Barnum. It was Michael Crawford playing P.C. Uh, Barnum. Yeah, I was just I was oh, enraptured by wonderful. the whole thing. So um, it would definitely be musical rather than film. It would be okay. stage rather than camera. Um, mm -hmm. As I like the mm -hmm. thrill of live stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it would be it would be feel good factor rather than Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It may happen. It, it may, may happen. Which I also love know. because I've also seen um, uh, Michael Crawford in in, in that as well. Smell. And he was just stunning. Um, no one else compares to him, but then that's because I saw him first. So, but I think I would prefer to be on stage in pantomime or in a, a fun musical rather than something mm -hmm. serious. Yeah. <laughs> Watch this space, <laughs> I think. <laughs> now, I'm sure you get asked this question a lot. But for those listeners who don't know, where did the name Diddy Top come from? Uh, this is the shortest answer you're going to get because I do <laughs> wax lyrical a bit. So my husband is six foot four. Um, oh. I am five foot four. So there's a huge height difference between the two of us. And I used to call him Tall Top because he's very tall. So he then called me Diddy Top, as in sh small Diddy. If you remember um, 
Ken Dodd and the Diddy Men. The Diddy Men were little oh, characters. Oh, yes. So he, yes. so my husband used to call me Diddy Tup. When we got married, he did. Uh, not before, that would be weird. So our surname is, <laughs> our surname is Tupling, so I married the surname Tupling. So he was Tall Tup and I was Diddy Tup. And now our son on social media is Wee Tup. So I, I refer to him as Wee Tup rather than by his name. So I'm quite... Uh, I've got a bit of a safeguarding twitch about children and social media and how much we expose our kids uh, without their consent, actually, on social media. So I always refer to him as Wee Tup because he's he was littler than me. He's now 13 very soon okay. and he's my height, which is really annoying. <gasps> he's um, four. Yeah, he? he's five foot three, so... five foot four. Um, uh, which is kind of irritating. He's going to be very tall, isn't he? He's going to be very tall. He looks me literally in the eye. Um, so he's not quite we anymore, but we as in younger. So um, tall tup, diddy tup and wee tup. Yeah. And wee tup is going to become giant tup, I think, (laughs) if he keeps on. Yes. He really is. On on this trajectory. Love him to bits. Oh. And I also know that you are a bit of a Doctor Who fan as well. Oh, yeah. How far are you in the Doctor Who marathon? Uh, we're just coming to the end of um, Colin Baker's time. So we introduced okay. uh, Woot Up to Doctor Who. We started watching the stuff from Christopher Eccleston. So he, that's Doctor Nine. Um, and uh, watch um, Eccleston and then David Tennant, then Matt Baker, uh, then Peter Capaldi and then Jodie Whittaker. Uh, and then we said to him, this is a revelation, son. Uh, there's a whole load more before <laughs> Christopher <laughs> Like, Why are they called 10, 11 and 12? Isn't it? They're like, oh, there's a whole load more. So we went on BritBox. Oh other things are available um, and discovered they were showing them all from the very, very beginning from William Hartnell all the way through. Um, and uh, we're like, right, let's, let's go back and watch them all from oh, the beginning. So brilliant. we did. William Hartnell was great. Grumpy old grandpa kind of thing. And and we t- were saying things like, well, why does he just abandon people? And why does he leave them? And <laughs> big questions about companionship and love and loss um, and how he deals with that. And then uh, Patrick Troughton was next, the sort of the Charlie Chaplin type character. A lot of those were lost. So the BBC have lost a lot of the tape. They kept, oh, they found okay. a lot of the audio because they were recorded separately in those days. So, um, so a lot of them is animation or some of the stills from some of the shots they were doing, okay. um, as okay. well as some of the actual shows. So that was great to see the sort of how progression has been made in terms of filmography. Uh, and then, uh, and I love Patrick Troughton. He was always a favourite a character but seeing him was, was absolutely brilliant for me i loved him uh, and then john pertwee he was very oh, flamboyant i loved him he would take I loved you out him. for dinner you know find someone who looks at his companion joe like the third doctor looks at joe you know uh, absolute adoration but nothing ever in it you know take you out and for there was dinner a lovely then, assistant yeah. I, I always remember there was an assistant called sarah yep so sarah jane so it was Sarah Jane Smith who went on that to was be. It with John yeah, Pertwee. with John Pertwee yeah. and the car Bessie that he used to drive and just absolutely love John Pertwee. And what I like is there's a slightly sort of queer take on this as well, which is um that the doctor adores his companions, but nothing ever happens. And you kind of go, that's interesting. Yeah. If you were asexual, but that's just a slight yeah. side, um, a slight thing. <laughs> so, um, but the ace community look at Doctor Who and go, he's definitely ace, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, he's brilliant. An interesting take on that. Um, and then, of course, my doctor, Tom Baker, when he turned up, I'm like, oh. yay, doctor, my doctor, there he is. The big scarf. Oh, the big yes. scarf, the floppy hat, the massive smile. Um, absolutely loved him. And because we're watching them kind of back to back, it was so short. Mm-hmm. We'd, we'd done all all four of his, uh, all his four years, whatever it was. We'd done it in like a month. I'm like, oh, oh my right. doctor is gone. I guess the episodes were probably, yeah, they were probably quite short. They were quite short. Days. And we're watching two or three a night. 
that's what we're, yeah. we're literally binge watching so wow. we got through all those and uh, and then when when he regenerated um into peter davison i said to, m- to my son i said i can't i need i need a couple of nights off i need to grieve tom baker <laughs> he's like mama seriously this was years ago and i, I know i know but i'm reliving it all so uh, then we watched peter davison who actually from memory i thought was terrible but actually watching him now we're like he's really good actually why did i dismiss i, I, know. Like I always more. think all creatures all creatures great oh, and small was great wasn't he i always think of him as, as the young Loved vet I, yeah. I could never think of him as the uh as no, doctor who doesn't quite but it works now with that <laughs> distance uh now we're on to colin baker who at the time i thought was a buffoon um and and now i look and i just think he's I'm just quite cross with him because he's quite rude to his assistants all the time and he's quite <laughs> puffed up, which I guess was the point of that's how it's written. So, um, so we're doing him. I can't remember who's next. Sylvester McCoy might be next. I can't remember. Um, and uh, and then I, it kind of all goes off into sort of sidesteps and then the war doctor and all that business. So, um, so we're nearly and there. Of course, we had, had a lady doctor. Yeah, Jodie Whittaker. Good to see. She, she was, was great. And I think I think she was good. I think the writing let her down. If I'm going to be a proper little Hoovian here, just for a moment, <laughs> I think I think the people who did her writing for her did a disservice. They could have given her better scripts. They could have given her better scenarios. They could have handled some of the story arcs much better. Um, she did a crackingly good job with what was a, a poor do mm. offered to her. Um, and if you're the first woman in any role that's been ever been done by a man, the first woman priest, for example, you're always going to be compared unfavorably rather than just going, let's see how yeah. it goes. So I yeah. think Jodie did a really good job and I really she enjoyed did. it. And I'm looking forward to the three specials coming up um, with David yes. Pennant back. It's like, what's he doing back as Doctor? <laughs> great. I'm loving it. Um, <laughs> and then and then Chuty Gatworth taking up the reins as the actual official Doctor after that. So it's going to be brilliant. It's going to be good. Going to be good. Oh, I'm glad you went all the way through it. I know I've um, I've been through all the the Star Trek. And it is funny when you go back to the very beginning, isn't it? I mean, it just looks so ancient, really. Funky. And the, <laughs> the, yeah, the science fiction <laughs> and the cardboard robots. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But interesting enough, all the things that they were coming up with and the sci-fi ideas and the concepts and the visions, you look at now and go, that's not so daft, you know, traveling at light speed and finding other other con- other countries, finding other planets and, and going beyond our own solar system. Um, yeah. They were ahead of their time and, and you know, warp mm-hmm. speed and all that business. You go look at now as scientists and go, they, they were imagining this and now we're actually finding mm-hmm. it's coming into fruition. So, um, yeah. but we can forgive them the wobbly sets for having the imagination yeah. to come up with all that kind of sci-fi stuff. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. But the yeah, as you say, the limitations in those days, it's uh, it was tremendous. Yep. So Katie, if I can just transport you back um in in the TARDIS <laughs> <laughs> to your to your younger self, what single piece of advice would you give yourself? That's tricky. I would go back to my seven year old self and say uh your your concepts are too small think big think the impossible um because it will happen um you've limited yourself and you've limited god which people do um don't limit yourself you know Mm -hmm. the the impossible is eminently possible just dream bigger i go back to my teenage self and say don't panic Mm -hmm. um Teenage years were, were tricky, family breakdown and what have you, um, and, and still hasn't resolved itself, you know, 30 years later. Um, still got ripples from that. So I think I would say to my my teenage self, don't panic, 
Um, it will come good. It looks a mess now. It is a mess now, to be fair. Um, good things will come and you will look back and you will you will appreciate some of the, the mess that you're living through at the moment. Um, and I go back to my very first ordained self and say, remember this. Remember this moment when you got ordained in Derby Cathedral, you knelt down watching the bishop come round each person in turn and lay hands on heads. Um, and remember how that felt, that joy, that surprise, yeah. that joy. Mm-hmm. Um, hang on to that because that's what's going to sustain you when when ministry is a mess, when the system is yeah. failing, when the structures are uh, appalling, when safeguarding is the making the headlines and you really wish it wasn't. Um, yeah. Hang on to that joy of knowing that God tapped you on the shoulder and didn't say come out of line. It was you're meant to be here. Yeah. Yeah. And help to to push some of these things forward. So you have an extremely busy life, Katie. Um, What is next for you on the horizon? That's tricky. That's the question I'm asking myself. And I've got a feeling God's going to go, in hindsight, you're going to see it quite clearly. And I'd be like, (laughs) no, I would like foresight. So at the moment, I've got my part-time job as disability advisor for Oxford Diocese. That's paid. I'm also an interim chaplain at an Oxford college. So St. Hughes, I'm interim chaplain there for the next year, academic year, having done one year already. Um, And a lot of people are saying, oh, you you could be a chaplain next. You can move into that. I'm like, yeah, I could. I really like being a chaplain. Um, and I really like being a disability advocate, but mm-hmm. I've got a feeling they're not the next thing, but I don't mm-hmm. know what is. Um, there's, there's kind of a, a godly nudge going, there's something coming next. And I'm like, that's great. What's that going to be? I'll let you know. No, don't say that <laughs> because that doesn't mean anything imminent. Um, God tells me with like one week's notice and he goes, oh, here's a thing. You should apply for that. And I go, okay. <laughs> so I apply for it and I get it. So, um, so what's next is I really don't know. It's not mm-hmm. what I'm currently doing, I don't think, but what it looks like, mm-hmm. I've literally no idea. So if anyone out there can help me discern what the <laughs> heck comes next, I'd be very grateful. <laughs> um, yeah, what next? Who knows? But God's definitely got an eye on what's coming up and will fill me in at the appointed time. Yes, I'm sure he will. And we, we just have to have patience about these things. Ah, patience, yes. <laughs> patience. It's a virtue, apparently. Well, yes. <laughs> Many other things are too. So, yeah, mm. no, knowing God's got this is fine. I just wish that oh, I was co-pilot with a map rather than in the back being sedated, <laughs> saying, don't get car sick, you'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> it will. It will happen. But, Katie, it's been really, really lovely talking to you um you're you're an inspiration and (laughs) keep on going with what you're doing because you're having a huge impact on the people you work with and the communities that you reach out to um I've got to say I am from Ireland and I have actually never drunk Guinness so um it looks very dark and very heavy but I think I may I may try that so you have inspired me to to try one one of the tipples that you had. Give it a go. You never know. You might like it. <laughs> so all the very best and uh, take care. Thank you.